fact that we all have an equal standing before God does not obliterate roles and responsibilities and authorities. Spiritual equality does not negate spiritual leadership. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part three of his eight-part series titled Church Government, Monarchy, Anarchy, or Democracy. Think about the world for a moment, about the different forms that secular government takes, perhaps a ruthless dictatorship or a modified democracy, maybe an established monarchy or chaotic anarchy. Tragically, many of those forms of government can be found in various churches today. Well, today Tom will continue to look at the scriptures, specifically the evidence that shows that a group of godly men, not a single individual, is to lead the church, with the persuasive evidence that God requires every church to follow that pattern. Keep that in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. So my task here is twofold, and that's to present to you the evidence from the scripture Evidence that shows that a group of godly men, not a single individual, is to lead the church. And secondly, to persuade you that God requires every church to follow that pattern. Where do we get that idea? Well, you go back even to the Old Testament and you see that the concept of a plurality of godly men leading was evident there. And I won't rehearse all of that, but we saw that there were elders of houses or families... There were elders, plural, of cities, and there were elders, plural, of the nation. So the Jewish mind was used to the concept of a plurality of godly men leading in various contexts. And then when you come to the New Testament and see the apostolic example, you see that played out in the life of the early church. We looked at a number of texts in the New Testament, a number of texts, and each one of them connects a plurality of godly men with a single flock or church. I want us to move on from that to several other issues. I want us to start with this. So what are the primary arguments against the plurality of elders? If that is the biblical model, as we looked at and saw it flow, why are there other models? What are the arguments that are used against it? Well, there are several, and I'm not going to take a lot of time with these, there are good defenses of these in several books, including Alexander Strock's excellent book, Biblical Eldership. Uh, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology addresses it, etc. I'm just going to touch on them. First of all, there are some passages that seem to show the one-pastor model. For example, Revelation chapter 1, you have the angels of the seven churches. Angels is simply a word which means messengers. You remember Christ is standing among the lampstands and he holds the stars in his hands and when John explains, or has that vision rather explained to him and he explains it to us, the lampstands represent the churches, the stars represent the angels of the seven churches. Better translation, the messengers are the leaders of the local churches. And so some would say those were single pastors over each of those churches. But that cannot be true. 
The way we know that's not true is one of those churches was the church in Ephesus. And we know from Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 and following, that there was a plurality of elders in Ephesus. So that argument really doesn't hold. And there are other arguments against it as well, but that's, that's one example. You can read about that at your choice. A second argument that's proposed against the plurality of elders is, what about the priesthood of every believer? Doesn't that support a democratic form of congregational government? Turn to 1 Peter for a moment. Let's look at this passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are priests to God. That is clear in the New Testament teaching. And so there are those who would say the priesthood of every individual believer argues for every believer to have a vote in what goes on in the life of the church. Well, there are several problems with that, not to mention the evidence we looked at last week for, for a plurality. But where is Peter quoting this from? Peter is quoting this verse from Exodus 19, verse 6, words that were originally addressed to Israel. This was Israel's, the nation's, original mandate from God when their constitution was formed there at Sinai. This is who they were to be. They failed to be that, and God has now assigned this role of a witness nation, a royal priesthood, to the church. But what I want you to remember is that these words addressed to Israel, calling them a royal priesthood, did not constitute the nation as a democracy. The people gathered at Sinai didn't get a vote. Moses and the 70 elders were all appointed solely by God and the existing leadership. And the people affirmed that in the very same sense that elders are appointed in the New Testament. So in what sense are believers priests? Really in one sense. Hebrews makes it clear. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and following. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, we, each of us, has confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. This is the sense in which we're priests. By a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You want to know the sense in which you're a priest? You don't have to go through some other priest to get to God. That's the priesthood of the believer. There's no intermediary between you and God except the one mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Each of us are priests in that sense. A third argument that's presented against the plurality of elders is that Christians are all one in Christ, and so there's no need for human authority in the church. Well, I think you can see on the face of it that this argument doesn't really stand because there is a sense in which we're no longer male and female either, according to Galatians 3.28. But that doesn't abolish those roles. In the home, for example, Ephesians 5 makes it clear that even though, as Galatians says, those distinctions are abolished in our standing before God, there's no difference between a man and a woman before God. And yet, in the home, the husband is still is placed in a position of responsibility and leadership over his wife. 
The same is true in the church. The fact that we all have an equal standing before God does not obliterate roles and responsibilities and authorities. Spiritual equality does not negate spiritual leadership, nor does it advocate spiritual anarchy or democracy. Those are three of common arguments you'll hear against the plurality of elders. Let's continue our look tonight by looking at specifically who are these men. Who are they and what's their function? I want to look at the three primary Greek words for the office of elder. Three words. The first word is the word for elder that's translated in our English Bible as elder. It's the word presbyteros. Presbyteros. It has two primary uses in the New Testament. One of those is to refer to an older man or an old man. You can see that usage in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. You remember Paul tells Timothy, if you're going to appeal to an older man, do it as to a father. And he uses this word. It's also used as a title for a community official, an elder. It has no specific age with this second usage. In other words, it's not that to be an, an official elder you have to be a certain age, but it does imply maturity, dignity, experience, and honor. It's used 28 times, this word presbyteros, or elder, in the Gospels and Acts for the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Twelve times in Revelation of the 24 elders who are representatives of the redeemed. Nineteen times in Acts and the Epistles, it occurs referring to a unique group of leaders in the church. We'll come back to give some meaning to this in a moment. Let's look at the second word. The second word is the word translated overseer. In some English Bibles, it's translated as bishop as well. The Greek word is episkopos. Episkopos. This was a common word for an office holder in Greek culture. In, it was used of secular officials of various kinds, especially local officials. Any official who acted as a superintendent, a manager, a controller, or a ruler could be called an episkopos. In the, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's used for army officers in Numbers 31.14. It's used of tabernacle administrators in Numbers 4.16. It's used for those supervising the repair of the temple in 2 Chronicles 24.12 and 17. It's used of those who guard the temple in 2 Kings 11.18. And it's used of city supervisors or mayors in Nehemiah 11.9. So it's used in a vast majority of ways, or a vast number of ways rather, in the Septuagint. It's used only five times in the New Testament. One time of Christ in 1 Peter 2.25, where he's called the overseer or bishop of our souls. The other four times it's used of church leaders. If, by the way, these four times, it's especially used for Gentile congregations like Ephesus, which would have understood the sort of secular Greek usage of this word. Someone who acted as a ruler or manager, an overseer. It's a very general word like supervisor, manager, or guardian. Those would be familiar English words that would capture some sense of this Greek word, episkopos. Now, 
Oversight is something that's a little hard to define, but I think we can get our arms around it a little more if we look at 1 Timothy, because 1 Timothy 5 sort of expands this concept without the word. What is oversight in the sense of an elder providing oversight? The word that is used here, the word for rules in verse 17, the elders who rule well, it means to put before, to set over, or to rule. It's also translated leads. These are very informative. It's, it's translated as leads in Romans 12.8. So what we're doing here is we're looking at a synonym, if you will, for our word overseer, a word that explains a little bit of what this means to, to oversee or to manage. And this word is translated as leads in Romans 12.8 where it refers to a gift of administration. The ability to manage, to set things in order, to rule. It's translated, this word is translated as manages in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, there where it refers to an elder's oversight of his household. He manages his household well. This word is translated as managers in 1 Timothy 3.12, there referring to the deacon and his managing of both his children, notice this, managing his children and his household. So this word encompasses both people and things, if you will. The parts of a household in addition to the people. So we are responsible, the elders are responsible to rule, to lead, to manage in all of these senses. Now notice in 1 Timothy 5.17, he says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at teaching and preaching. This also helps us understand a little bit more. This word especially is used 12 times in the New Testament eight times in Paul's epistles, and every time Paul uses this word, what follows it is always a subset of what has come before. And I'm not going to take you through all those references. You'll have to trust me. But the bottom line is, when he uses this word, he's saying, I'm going to now describe a subset of what has come before. Now, why is that important in 1 Timothy 5? Look at it again. 1 Timothy 5.17. You have all of the elders who are supposed to rule. Then some of the elders rule particularly well. While all of the elders are supposed to be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3, 2, some work hard at teaching and preaching. The implication is that some elders have greater teaching responsibilities probably because of superior gifts. What I want you to see here in 1 Timothy 5.17 is that the responsibility of all elders is to rule or to use the word we've been looking at before, they are to serve as overseers, episkopos, managers, which is a synonym to this word in 1 Timothy 5.17. Now, when I say that, some people immediately say, well, wait a minute, the elders should just stay out of everything except the spiritual. Isn't that what Acts 6 teaches? I've actually had a lengthy discussion with a dear friend 
who absolutely believes that elders should stay out of everything except, well, turn to Acts 6. Let's look at it. Except what the apostles say they're going to do. Look at Acts 6, verse 4. Verse 3 says, uh, they say, Brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. In other words, there are those who say, you keep your hands off, elders, of everything except the ministry of the Word and prayer and let the rest of us do everything else. Is that what the Bible teaches in Acts 6, 1-6? Let's look at it together. First of all, most commentators agree that this passage does not deal with the offices of elder and deacon but only a foreshadowing of In other words, we're not yet talking about the office of elder and the office of deacon. This is just foreshadowing. These are apostles and men who are going to serve. In that sense, it points forward, but it's not the exact thing. However, even if you grant that this passage deals with the church offices, even if you say, okay, these are like elders and deacons, it only affirms or confirms that elders ultimately have oversight of every aspect of church life and they must exercise that oversight. I want you to notice the following oversight functions of the apostles in Acts 6. Notice they fielded the problem. A complaint arose and it came to the twelve. The twelve, again, if they're acting as elders, notice how they perform oversight here. They fielded the problem. They determined the key issue was a shortage of manpower. The real problem we have here is we need some people to deal with this. Then the apostles determined that the solution was to put some men over the specific task. They decided how many men were needed. They said we need seven men we think will handle this problem. They set up the qualifications for those who would be appointed. They determined what they needed to be, verse 3, men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. They decided who would select the men. They allowed the people who were a part of the church to select these men, particularly the, part, the party that was complaining that their widows were being overlooked, which was a wise decision, the part of the apostles. And while we're not told... While the text doesn't mention any outcome of this situation, there is every reason to expect that the apostles checked up on this new ministry to make sure that it was functioning properly. The only thing, listen carefully, the only thing the apostles said they would not do and they did not do was actually serve in the ministry. This does help in some ways define and confirm the role of oversight of an elder. While the office is not here, you see that the elders are responsible for oversight, but they must not and they should not do the ministry itself. All these are undeniably the functions of an overseer. Now, let's move on to our third Greek word. We've, let, we've looked at the word elder. We've looked at the word overseer. Our third word is the word shepherd or pastor. Poimain is the Greek word. The noun form of this word occurs 18 times in the New Testament. It's used of actual shepherds, that is, keepers of real animals. That's not our task. It's used of Christ in two passages, in Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 2. 
And it's used one time of church leaders, where it's translated pastor in our English versions, and that's in Ephesians 4.11. By the way, in Ephesians 4.11, the Greek construction puts the two words together. It's probably best to translate it as it is, I believe in the New American Standard, pastor-teachers. It emphasizes the shepherd's primary role, which is teaching or feeding the sheep. Think about it for a moment. What is the key role of a literal shepherd of animals? Feeding them. You can get away with a lot of things as a shepherd, but you're not going to be a shepherd very long if you don't feed the sheep. That highlights the, This word highlights the key responsibility that we have in leading the church, teaching or feeding the sheep. Now, the verb form of this word is used three times in the context of church leaders. It's used in John 21, where Christ demands that Peter shepherd his sheep. It's used in Acts 20, verse 28, where Paul reminds the Ephesian elders that they are to shepherd the church. And it's used in 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter charged the elders that were scattered to shepherd the flock of God. Essentially, this word is a word picture. It pulls from that culture and helps the leadership of the church to see what their heart and function is to be. They are to be to the people, to their flock, what an actual shepherd is to literal sheep. They are to be everything that that shepherd is. They are to feed them. They are to care for them. They are to protect them. They are to help heal them when they're in trouble, rescue them from danger. All of the things that a shepherd does to sheep, a leader of the church, an elder, an overseer, and a shepherd is to do. Now, when you look at these three words, it's important to understand that they identify the exact same person or same office. Elder, overseer, shepherd all refer to the same office and the same person. How do we know that? Well, let me give you very briefly, again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but you need to know this. Here's how we know these all refer to the same person. First of all, the qualifications for an overseer, the word used in 1 Timothy 3, and the qualifications for an elder, the word used in Titus 1, are almost identical. It's clear that that function is the same, even though it's described by these different words, overseer and elder. Secondly, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in Titus 1.5, then calls the same office overseer in verse 7, two verses later. A third argument, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, brings all three of the concepts together into one office. Notice what Peter says. I exhort the elders among you, there's our first word, as your fellow elder, shepherd the flock, there's our second word, among you, exercising oversight, there's our third word. So Peter brings all three of those concepts together in this one office. That's Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, Church Government, Monarchy, Anarchy, or Democracy. Tom will have part four for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you?
Well, Tom, the plurality of elders' model of church governance can seem unfamiliar to many people, can't it? I grew up in churches that were based on different models. I remember belonging to a church in which it really was a, a monarchy. One man really ruled the church, and everyone else just existed to fulfill his vision. I remember belonging to a church that was a democracy in which everyone had an equal vote and say. Neither of those are biblical models. Instead, the Scripture is very clear that there is to be a plurality of godly men leading Christ's church, every church. And that's what we need to pursue. That's what we need to own as believers and what we need to pursue and facilitate that as much as lies within us without creating division in our own churches. Thanks, Tom. And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries training conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.